Please continue to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Continue our study in the 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're starting in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. For I see from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, excuse me, when we were, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining manners I will arrange when I come. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Self-examination in the Lord's table, that's the title of the message, and let's go before the Lord once again, prepare to hear from him. Father, we do thank you for your word once again. Um, enable me um, the ability to communicate this truth to your people. Give us ears to hear. Grant repentance where there needs to be repentance, salvation where there's death. Grant life, we pray, for Christ's sake. Uh, we're making our way through 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, where Paul addresses some serious, to say the least, problems with the dysfunctional Corinthian church, and problems that they were having uh, with the Lord's Supper, of all things, um, and um, in so doing, Paul, the apostle, gives us um, a, a timeless word that has stretched over 20 centuries of church life, and, and that is how every generation of Christians should understand and partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's very compelling for us this morning to look at as we and we'll participate at the Lord's table here this morning after this message. And the text here um, contains um, a warning that should give us all great pause. 
Paul warns here that unless we examine ourselves before we come to the table, um, we risk coming under his judgment, that is, under his discipline, um, whereby some in the church are, are weak, they're, they're anemic, they're sickly, some have even died. Now, let me say this before we move on. Although we need not fear coming to the Lord's Supper because we're sinners who struggle with our sins. Anybody not struggle with your sins? You're probably not a Christian if you don't struggle with sins. Nevertheless, we do need to examine ourselves in the manner prescribed here by the Apostle Paul. That, that really is the theme of the sermon this morning. That's the heart of this text. How do we properly examine ourselves before partaking of the table? That's what we're after this morning, okay? So here then, the Apostle Paul um, has addressed several issues that plagued the church here in Corinth. They were guilty of puffed-up pride. They were guilty of being hyper-spiritual. We'll see more of that um, defined for us in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Factions of identifying with certain teachers. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. They were wooed, of course, by um, rhetoricians and philosophers that made their way through the city of Corinth. Yet most all of their issues, beloved, if you haven't put this together by this point in our study, all of their issues really resulted in a fundamental lack of unity within the body of Christ. A fundamental lack of unity within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's main point here is that divisions in the church undermine her true identity. For she is in union with Christ. And you're divided. Notice in verse 17, their gathering together for worship was doing more harm than good. C could you imagine that? You know, you would have been better off just to stay home, y'all. <laughs> and it's causing, verse 18, schismata, more division, schisms. That is, once again, the issue being addressed, only it's dressed in different clothes this time. Notice, making, verse 20, what they intended to be the Lord's Supper, anything but that. Sadly, it had degenerated into things that actually went on in pagan temples. The very place in which God called them out of. So Paul rebukes the congregation. He has nothing good to say um, about this. Verse 22, I do not commend you, he says. You despise the church. You gather together and you despise the church of Jesus Christ and you shame the poor. 
Okay, now again, context is important. The church met on the Lord's Day, of course, Sundays. But in the Roman Empire, that was a, that was a regular work day. So typically when the church gathered, they would gather together after the work day. And rich people, wealthy people, that's usually where you would hold church because you could fit 150 people in the open courtyard. And then they had a dining room um, inside the home. Well, what was going on is that the wealthy people could gather any time during the day and they were eating all the food and drinking all the wine and they ended up drunk. And by the time the poor people arrived, which be, would be after work, and then they typically probably worked for a family. Once they cleaned up there, then they made their way and all the food's gone in what was referred to as a love feast. So they would have a love feast on the Lord's Day followed by the Lord's Supper. By the time they get there, some of the congregations drunk and they're shaming the poor who have nothing to eat now. So, so that's the idea. It's not like coming into Pacific Hope and you got 15 people in the fellowship hall, you know, staggering drunk. So this is the context um, in, in a home in Corinth. So Paul moves then from rebuking them to words of institution. That is the institution of the Lord's Supper given by the Lord himself. And you know, this is, this is important for us to know. If it were not for the Corinthian abuses of the Lord's table, we would not have this text, which is the fullest text in, in teaching us um, our actions regarding the Lord's table and how it is to be carried out. Isn't that something? So again, by way of God's providence, working all things together for the good for those who are, are called, he uses the, the, the sins and failures of God's people from the past to bless us today. Think about King David, his sin with Bathsheba. Were it not for the providence of God with regard to David's sin with Bathsheba and going an entire year without repenting and confessing that sin with Bathsheba, we would not have Psalm 32 or Psalm 51. You see the grace of God in all this? So here we have the abuses of the Lord's table in Corinth, and we're given these glorious words of institution. Verse 23, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he, would, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The word betrayed there is paradidomy, better translated, handed over or delivered up. We don't want to think here primarily of Judas betraying Jesus. What we want to think of primarily is God Almighty delivering up his son to bear his wrath. Judas was only a secondary means on that night. We read in Romans 8, 32, he, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but delivered him up, paradidomy, for us all. As I said last Lord's Day, that language finds its origin in what God does to the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, um, that God delivering over Messiah for the transgressions of ours, our transgressions, our sins. He delivered him up. It's a very sacrifice, the sacrifice 
for sins. So on the night he was delivered up, Jesus said, this is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't tell us how often to do it. It doesn't say every time you gather, do this. It says as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Okay? Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it quarterly. We stick to once a month. We decided long ago, we think, we, we just think it's the best for us. So. Now, when Jesus said that, that this is my body, okay, he, he cannot have meant that the bread and the wine on that table that night were literally his body and literally his blood. Amen? Can we get a witness all throughout the house this morning? His literal body was behind the table when he spoke these words. He wasn't on the table. This is, this is my body. This bread is my body. This bread represents my body. This cup, the new covenant, represents my blood. These are symbols of my body and of my blood. Amen? They were not literally his body. People still argue for that today. Don't make that mistake. This would be like a school teacher with his little pointer or her pointer um, uh, pointing to a map, a world map, and says, children, this is France. What does that mean? Is the map France? No. That picture or that illustration represents France. It's that simple. So when we eat and we drink of the bread and the cup, it's not through words of hocus pocus that they all of a sudden now turn into the literal physical body and blood of Jesus. That's utter nonsense, by the way. This symbolizes his body and blood. Some believe that, that, that his physical presence is in the blood and, or in the cup or over the bread or under the bread and so on like as the Lutherans do. Friends, his physical presence is nowhere in the supper. His physical presence is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We'll talk more about this as we move along, okay? So Jesus holds up this cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and again, it's not a renewed cup. It's not a different administration of the same cup. It's a cup of the new covenant, because on that night, everything that the Old Testament prophesied about, all the types, all the shadows, on that night, at that table, was on the verge of being fulfilled. He is the Passover lamb. So Jesus uses symbols. He uses the type, that is, of the Passover, that Passover meal, in offering himself up in the shedding of his blood. It all pointed to him, and here he is on that night. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of those words. The new covenant in my blood, but my body broken for you. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's another thing we'll be doing this morning is proclaiming these historical facts. So part of what we do is, a, is an historical declaration and an eschatological proclamation, an eschatological expectation. 
Because he died, we remember that, that's an historical fact. He, he was also raised the third day, and he will return, so we proclaim his death until he comes again. Therefore, verse 27, now we're into our text for this morning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, Paul says that there's a profound seriousness in partaking of the Lord's table together. Serious business. So when he says in an unworthy manner, what he's not saying is that because I struggle with my sin and I had a terrible week, I better not partake. Anyone not struggle this week? We're all unworthy sinners, are we not? He's the worthy one. We're in union with Christ. Therefore, we come to the table. So when he talks about an unworthy manner, he means to, to simply treat this table, this meal, as a very common thing. Treating it with um, carelessness. Treating it with irreverence. Coming with unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Or with superficial attitudes. I remember a church, they would take the bread, they would drink that cup, and, and then a group of people, they'd always snap the cup at the end like it was a big joke, and everybody'd laugh. Ha, ha, ha. That's an unworthy manner. A couple illustrations I read this week um, just, I think, served to help, um, help us this morning regarding an unworthy manner. Um, one was to consider the idea of visiting um, Washington, D.C., and, and let's say it's uh, the Vietnam War Memorial Wall, where people are there sobbing, where people who've lost loved ones in the war are, are sitting there and considering the life of their loved one. And, they're, and they have a pencil, and they have all the names on that wall, and, and they etch, they, 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 they uh, mark over the etching of the name of that loved one. So you're there, and it's quiet. You're s quietly reflecting, and suddenly a, a group of morons walk in, loudly laughing and joking and punching each other and pushing one another, which forces the standing guard at the memorial to enforce silence, to enforce reverence, because the place is worthy of that kind of observance. That kind of respect. And that is what and who that wall represents. Another illustration. Consider protests sometimes we see going on in the media uh, with the burning and trampling of the flag of the United States of America. People who are insulting everything that flag stands for. That's what they're doing. Disrespecting the flag in that way is insulting the people it represents. It's a mockery of their leaders. Don't let me catch anybody ever burning a flag, boy. Let me tell you that. Ooh, tough guy. 
It's to, be, it's to be guilty of treating with contempt those who give their lives in service for that flag, which is for this country. Those who have fought and those who continue to fight and work for the freedoms that we have. They become guilty, uh, not of merely dishonoring the flag, but of dishonoring this nation. So at the Lord's table, to trample the symbols, the symbols represented there on that table are symbols of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we trample them under the feet of indifference, perhaps under the feet of pride, of shallowness, of selfishness, of unrepentance. See how serious this is? That's an unworthy matter. It's to, bring, it's to bring dishonor and shame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom those symbols represent. Whoever does so, he says, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a serious offense. We're guilty should strike fear in us, amen? And by the way, you don't have to be drunk and have food all over your mouth or stick it in your beard to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord as the Corinthians were. See, they're guilty uh, because they were drunk and they were pigging down all the food, gorging themselves. It's unlikely for us. So what's really at heart here is what's going on in the heart. <laughs> That's what he's after. You know, um, bitterness. Bitterness is something we, we oftentimes just dismiss, something that's overlooked. But in Hebrews chapter 12, we read, uh, pursue peace with all men. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many become what? Defiled. So having bitterness within with regard to the church could be an unworthy way of participating. There are those in the church who, who actively promote factions. I don't mean here in particular. I just mean historically. In churches to this day, there are those who promote factions. They love division. They love to divide. They love to divide what Christ has made one, and it's his body. That's partaking in an unworthy manner. There it's dangerous. We're going to see it gets very dangerous. People who constantly rail against someone or something in the church that are always sour, always bitter, always miserable, they partake in an unworthy manner. Paul says, you bring dishonor upon the Lord Jesus Christ by trampling the symbols of bread and wine, of, of the bread and the cup that represent him, and represent his body. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. So how do you avoid doing that? Verse 28. A man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Notice, examination, in so doing, that is self-examination, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's a present imperative. 
That, that is, uh, means a general ongoing instruction for the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you partake. Examining oneself. So the word examine is the word test, and it has its roots in, in the testing of metals for their purity. It's the idea. So therefore, participation of the Lord's Supper is a serious matter, and it requires self-examination before participation. We all have this, amen? Paul's very clear in the matter. So um, we have to remember this, beloved. Self-examination um, is not an end in itself. It should not lead us to despair. Ryan mentioned earlier, too much self-introspection can be a bad thing. So that's not an end in and of itself, but it is designed, self-examination that is, to lead me to the cross. To lead me to the place where the price was paid, where I confess my sins, I repent, which means to change how I think, amen. Are you not, fellow believers, constantly changing the way you think with regard to the convicting work of God the Holy Spirit? Is it not a daily thing? Amen. It is. I'll think something, I'm like, I cannot believe I just thought that. I, especially when I watch the news. I'm like, I cannot believe the thought that just ran through my head. It comes from the sinfulness within me. And then whatever this act is that flashes through my mind, I go, Lord, I am corrupt. Have mercy on me. And through the conviction of the Spirit, I repent. My, 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 my thinking is changed, Right? we realize once again how faithful he is. When we repent, we, we confess, we realize how merciful he is, that he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. You don't want to come to the table in an unrepentant state. And then self-examination is therefore a means to that end. It's not an end in itself. It's, it's, it's the end of repenting, confessing, and entrusting ourselves to the promises of God. Cleanse forgiven. Amen? Now, what the table is not, okay, what the Lord's Supper is not, is a converting ordinance. That table does not convert anyone. A lot of people think that it does. It is not some magical charm that if you partake of, you get saved through. Eating the bread, drinking the cup. Look, if you're not in Christ, you shall not partake. That's why I give the verbal warning every month. If you're not in Christ, do not partake of this table. That's one reason we fence the table. Fence the table. Some churches fence the table by um, allowing only members of the church to partake. Every time I go visit my folks, I go to church with them, I'm not allowed to partake of the table because they don't know me. That's how they fence the table. And that's fine. I see in the Bible there's only a verbal warning, so that's how we fence the table. The warning goes out. Unbelievers shall not partake. Which means the table is a, here's a word of the day, a discriminating ordinance. We discriminate at the Lord's table. We intentionally try to exclude people on the basis of the fact that they're not in Christ. You're not in Christ, do not dare partake. 
Why do we do that? Isn't that mean? That's not mean. That's loving. We do that so that those who are not in Christ will realize they're not in Christ and hopefully they'll come to Christ. That's a great manner of discrimination. It's hopeful. So this is the new covenant Jesus said in my blood. It is a covenant made up of a people who are regenerated by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's an internal transforming power that takes place, calling people into the new covenant. Now, the community of the church that gathers, this is not the new covenant. This is a product of the new covenant of us gathering here this morning. Amen? This is a product of the new covenant. Sinners saved by grace through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. New covenant people. God never tells people, all throughout redemptive history, he never tells people that the way to be right with him is to simply go to church. A neighbor lady sent her son, he was a teenage kid, lived somewhere in this neighborhood. She said, he says, you get yourself over there and see that pastor and get yourself right and get yourself born again. <laughs> so I had a lot of explaining to do when the kid came because... His mama had no idea what it meant to be bone again. So after I explained the gospel, I haven't seen the kid since. <laughs> hopefully, you know, hopefully the Lord will transform the kid, but I, I haven't seen him around. You know, even under the old covenant, Jeremiah stood before a people at Solomon's temple. Okay, and, and he said, he urgently warned the people there who attended temple. He said this. He cried out, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Those are deceiving words. If you're not a believer and you go, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church, those are deceptive words. I grew up in the church. Mom and dad took me to church. But are you in Christ? There's nothing worse, in other words, there's nothing worse than letting people think they're saved when they're not saved. So we give a verbal warning. That's how we fence the table. Also, um, people who are under church discipline in one church should not seek to come to the table of the Lord at another church. Someone's under, not that many churches exercise church discipline, but the ones that do, I've received calls sometimes to say, hey, we, we understand one of our members is, um, is gathering for service at Pacific Hope Church. We want you to know they're under church discipline. So we won't let them partake if we have that knowledge and vice versa. If I know someone's attending another church and they're under church discipline here, we'll do the same thing. But again, it's rare that Churches do that today, unfortunately. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. To judge means to discern, to properly um, estimate, to rightly evaluate. And here he says, if he does not judge the body rightly. Now that's a difficult part of the verse right there. Okay, so let me explain a few things. What Paul is not saying 
you're not rightly judging or you're not rightly discerning the physical presence of Jesus' body. That, that, that again, is a myth that's been taught for centuries because, again, he's not physically present in the supper. His divine nature, in his divine nature, is he always ever-present? Yeah, he's God. He's omnipresent. But physically, in his human nature, God incarnate Jesus is, again, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So he doesn't mean that, that you don't discern the physical body of Jesus. He may be saying, you are not rightly judging the significance of that communion bread. It's the symbol of Christ's body. And the way you're all behaving, you're not rightly discerning that. Because that bread is reflective of his death. And you Corinthians are acting like you're out of your minds. Now, the question is, does Paul mean the body represented by the bread as mentioned in verse 27? Notice that phrase, the blood and body of Jesus. Or is he referring to the body of Christ, that is the people of God, the church, as mentioned in chapter 10 and verse 17? Or is it both? I think it's both. Consider the Corinthians' abuse going on at the supper. Both of those things are true. They gather, they eat bread, they're pigging out, they're getting drunk, they have no regard for the symbolism in that bread, the body of Christ. Make sense? At the same time, they're not discerning the significance of the unity of the body of Christ shaming the poor. So they're sinning vertically and horizontally. And the great theologian, Tom Schreiner, agrees with me. That, that was a joke. <laughs> Tom Schreiner says this. Quote, those who discriminate against other members of the congregation while eating and drinking of the elements do not discern the significance of Christ's death, nor do they perceive the unity of the body of Christ. End of quote. So he, he believes it's the both and. I believe it's the both and. Okay, so what's going on? Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick. In a number, sleep. Because you fail to rightly recognize the body of Christ and the fellowship of the brethren who are in union with Christ, some of you are weak. You have poor health. You have sickness. And a sufficient number of y'all have died. What's he talking about? Divine discipline. Divine discipline. Now the context for this also takes us back to chapter 10, does it not? In verse 5, where the Israelites are described by Paul of having departed from Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years only to die in the Sinai desert. Remember all that when we were in chapter 10? Chapter 10, verse 6, look at it. 
Now, these things happened as examples for us. Oh, I don't have this. Sorry. We're not ready for 1 Peter yet. Chapter 10 and verse 11. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So before Israel entered the promised land, remember what Moses did? He preached Deuteronomy. Moses preaches Deuteronomy, and he says on a number of occasions, don't forget, y'all. He says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord, God, the Lord your God brought you out. Remember that. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb? You remember that? Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Don't forget that. Here, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Don't forget. Don't forget. Now, the Corinthians would have also been familiar, um, as likely all the members of the apostolic churches were, of the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. There you have a believing husband and wife who God strikes dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. They're struck dead right there. Getting all ready for church, rolling in all prideful. Look at what we did. No, you didn't. Death. And in response, the, 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 the watching, unbelieving community said this. Although the people held them in high esteem, the people in the church, none of the rest dared to associate with the church. You imagine? Man, that's serious business in there. Nevertheless, we read, many were being brought to faith. So they would have known about Ananias and Sapphira. Friends, divine, dis divine discipline that comes from the hand of God is a means by which God deals with our unrepentant sins when we won't. Amen? Now, as we move on, you're going to be glad for that. Divine discipline is God dealing with our unrepentant sins when we won't. It's not punitive, but it's remedial. It's, it's a corrective type of discipline, some of which is very serious, i.e., some of you are anemic, sick, weak, and dead. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. You need to think again. You know, oftentimes when we think of weakness, when we think of illness, when we think of frailty, rarely do we consider a spiritual connection to it. Fair enough to say? Rarely. We most often think in terms that are merely naturalistic. And when I read my Bible, I see that throughout its history, God has judged nations, pagans with pestilence. Pagans with natural disasters. You know, this coronavirus, this rising pandemic, is seen simply as a natural outbreak. Certainly not divine. This couldn't be of God. Oh, no. Who's sovereign behind earthquakes? Famine. Tornadoes. Any other type of disaster, any other kind of illness, who's sovereign behind it all? 
Who's the primary cause? God. Just go read the book of Revelation and the four horsemen sent out by Jesus. The wrath of God, Romans 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And they receive their, in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God is sovereign. But is it possible that God uses physical illness and weakness as a form of discipline for his own people? I get the world, but what about his own people? Answer, yes. 1 Peter 4, 17, look at it. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Friends, that does not mean, do not hear me saying something I'm not saying. That does not mean that every time you get sick, God is disciplining you, amen? We, we do not know the secret decreed will of God, okay? Christians, like everybody else, get colds and cancers, right? It, it's just part of his secret decreed will. The late, great James Boyce, Ryan quoted him, or no, Matthew quoted James Boyce this morning in Sunday school. The late, great James Boyce was ravaged by cancer at the age of 62. Great man of God, servant of the church, incredible theologian, a greatly gifted mind from God. When he died, his great friend R.C. Sproul, he said this, James Boyce's death is God's judgment on America. I agree with that. He's in glory. The judgment, Sproul thinks, was on America. American evangelicalism, perhaps. Because he was leading a charge with sound, sola scriptura. Everything is according to the word of God. And according to the great sovereignty of God. So while most illnesses, beloved, do have a natural cause, they're providentially carried out. In this case, some in Corinth have become sick. Some have died as a direct result of the divine discipline of the Lord. So ignoring his discipline, when his people won't deal with their unrepentant sins, he may ratchet it up. He may turn up the heat, even unto death, yeah, that's what the scripture says. Because of divine discipline, they're dead people in Corinth. Remember back in chapter 5? Remember the man who was having a relationship, a physical relationship with his, like, stepmom? Remember that? And they didn't deal with that sin in the church. You remember that? Remember what he said in chapter 5, verse 5? I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus apostolic authority. You know, pr professing Christians who slip further and further away and they become involved in heinous sin, we call that becoming, you know, backslidden and all that. They become involved in heinous sins. It, it, it's so shocking sometimes because they become almost unrecognizable. 
as to who and what they were at one time. Just not recognizable. And they experience perhaps what seems to be the discipline of the Lord and is a brother or sister in Christ. We may point that out to them. They ignore it. They dismiss it. They even become embittered against you. And then one day you receive a phone call and the one on the other line says, so-and-so is dead. I know I told you the story about this guy, no name Billy, right? Sorry to burden with you again, but this fellow was a Christian. He used to witness to me constantly. I wasn't saved at that time. A few years later, the Lord saved me and I ran into him in public. And I thought when I saw him, he is going to be ecstatic that I'm saved. God saved me. And when I went up to him and told him I'm saved, he seemed a little distant. He's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, it turns out he was living in a terrible backslidden state. And over the course of the next two years, I found out that he had been in a car accident. He rolled his Jeep on the freeway. He was in an accident um, out in the desert. He called me up out of the blue one day, and he goes, hey, John, uh, my brother's involved um, in a in a cult, and I know you know the Bible really well. I was wondering if you could point out some verses for me. I said, Billy, you used to know the Bible inside and out, man. And you're calling me? I go, Billy, let's forget about your brother for a moment. Let's talk about you. (laughs) Brother, you are backslidden, and you need to repent. And as a brother in Christ, I'm calling you to repent. He said, dude, I got to go, and he hung up. Two weeks after that, I received a phone call from a friend of ours, and he said, Johnny, he says, Billy's dead. Partying in the desert, head-on collision with a dune buggy in the middle of the night, dead. Those funerals are very difficult to do because you just don't know. Was that God's discipline, or was he not in Christ in the first place? Right? Don't know. But, verse 31, here we go, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The the verb judged means to distinguish, to distinguish. Meaning that we're to make this self-examination a regular practice. Regular practice for the Christian. Verse 32. But when we are judged, in other words, when and if we are judged by the chastening hand of God, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Don't miss that. That's what he meant in chapter 5, verse 5. Deliver such a one over for the fl- to the Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. That's what Paul meant. So it's not damnation, it's chastening is what he's talking about. God chases, those are who truly his, he chastens. So to be condemned with the world means to go to hell because that's where the world's going. So that you will not be condemned. If you judge yourself, you wouldn't be disciplined by the Lord, but if you are disciplined by the Lord to this point, it's so that you won't be condemned along with the rest of the world. That's how much he loves you. Amen? What father does not discipline his son? Look at Hebrews 12, verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, you're not, you are rather illegitimate children and not sons. Just think about it from an earthly father perspective and earthly children. We read in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. My grandkids were here just for yesterday, and I was reminded of that. For real. Oh, and I love them. But I was reminded of this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs also goes on to say, the parent who withholds the rod from their child actually hates their child. How much more the Lord and his love for his own will he discipline? So God knows how to use pain. He knows how to use suffering for the sanctification of his people. That's what Paul is saying. Hurts sometimes though, doesn't it? Man, a lot. So what's the goal for the believer? Acknowledgement. Acknowledgement, admission, confession, response, and repentance. That's the goal of divine discipline. That's what he's bringing us to. That's what he's working out to, to work in us a heart of repentance. And the, and the Lord knows precisely how to apply the rod of correction, does he not? So when and if, when and if we are, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So this is a measure God uses to keep us repenting and to keep us believing. Thankful for that to keep us repenting and to keep us believing. And it always begins with conviction within. Gentle, loving, chastening of conviction that comes from the Lord. So if we quench it, if we quench the spirit, if we begin to despise the spirit, we become callous. If we become callous, he may turn up the heat. He increases the pressure. He heightens the pain. He brings us low in order to tear off calluses that we've built up in rebellion and disobedience. And yet on the other hand, okay, on the other hand, ignoring his discipline trying to shut him out, growing ever more embittered towards God, it may be the very demonstration that one is not in Christ. That's why those funerals are hard to do. If you ever think as a Christian, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to do what I want, how I want, and apparently, if it gets bad enough, God's going to take me out. If you can think like that, you're a fool. Because that's thinking of an unbeliever. Be careful. So then, verse 33. My brothers, when you come together to eat, context, Corinth, in these homes, wait for one another. Don't get drunk and don't court yourselves. Bunch of animals. Is that practical advice right there? Consider context. It's just, it's just common hospitality. Wait for the rest of everybody to get there. Verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. <laughs> if you want to stop being judged at church, eat at home. 
good place to eat. We ate some food at our house yesterday with some people over at the house. It was good. Just common sense that he lays out here. In other words, the Lord's Supper was never intended to satisfy physical hunger. It's a meal to satisfy spiritual hunger. So if you want to eat, eat at home. Is there anything wrong with church fellowship meals? No. Anything wrong with our potlucks? No, they're delicious. It's a good time. Love all those casseroles. You grew up in the Midwest, man, that's all you have at a potluck church is casseroles. <laughs> but they're good. It's sweet fellowship. But more than anything else, church leadership is responsible to keep the church doing what she is supposed to do, and that is to stay the course. We don't turn the church into a daily soup kitchen or the United Way. Amen? Some churches, that's all they do, and if you ask one of their members to explain the gospel you, you could put a gun to their head and they wouldn't know. Soup kitchens are fine, but in the church, let's make sure we're doing church. Remember, masses of people sought Jesus for food and free health care. You remember this? And many times he slipped out. Remember in Mark, Jesus, throngs of people are searching for you because you healed so many yesterday. He goes, okay, let's go on to the next town then. Let's get out of here. Why? So that I can preach there. For that is why I came out, to preach. Remember that? Many accepted Jesus as a miracle worker. It was undeniable, amen? But miraculous faith is not saving faith. Miraculous faith is not saving faith. Just because you accept Jesus doesn't mean he accepts you. Just go read John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Many people accept Jesus as a good teacher. Many people accept Jesus as one to be followed. But unless you accept him as who he is, Lord God Almighty, God incarnate, who came to this earth to uphold the law that you fail in and lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, was raised again and will come in judgment, the Lord of glory... Unless you accept him as who he is, you don't know him. So the ministry of the local church, it's not our job to entertain the masses or to physically feed people who come here. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, what? Spiritually. That's the job of the church. So the local church, in other words, is not to do what God ordained the home to do, have your supper there, or the state to do. God's ordained the state to do certain things and the home to do certain things. When you gather in the church, is to equip the saints in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole counsel of God. That's why I preached this morning, well, for 50 minutes, and we have 10 minutes left, okay? To equip the saints. Spiritually. You know, a lot of churches that are given to social justice, you see some of these people on TV, a lot of these guys called pastors, or usually it's reverend, they don't know the gospel. They think social justice is the gospel. So they're involved in everything else but gospel ministry. 
If you want to eat, eat at home, says Paul. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And you know those other things, verse 34b, about other things? Um, I'll give direction when I come. <laughs> I wish I knew what those things were. <laughs> so then, all that to say it is perfectly appropriate for the Lord's Supper to be served as modern churches do today, and that is not in the context of a, context of a fellowship meal, but in the context of public worship. A little cup and a little piece of bread that symbolize the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand this and we partake after the gospel's been preached, after sinners repentantly confess that is sinners saved by grace. We repentantly confess, reassured of the pardon we have in Jesus Christ, you run to the table, amen? But I had a bad week, run to the table in repentant fashion. So Paul points out here that we, 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 we need not fear partaking of the table if we examine ourselves, run to the table. In this way, that is self-examination, self we must eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Do we understand this, beloved? I never want us to be people who just take the table for granted once a month. Here we go. And don't ever crack a cup in here. If anyone does it today, after saying that, no one's ever done that here, but I was in a church that just used to drive me crazy. Crack, 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 crack. That is so dishonoring. Are you with me? Friends, the Lord loves us enough to discipline us. The Lord loves us enough to see to it that we will persevere. The Lord loves us enough to make sure we keep on repenting, and he loves us enough to see that we keep on believing. And, and what's the primary way in which he does that? Preaching of his word, of his glorious gospel. So awareness of your sin, beloved, should not keep you away from the communion table. It should drive you to it. And I want you to enjoy it this morning as we come examining on ourselves while our confident trust is not in ourselves but in him and him alone. Amen? If you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you should not come and you should be afraid. You should be deathly afraid of the judgment to come. So we bid you to come to faith in Christ. We bid you to repent, to change how you think about Christ, to, think how, to change how you think about yourselves, and to run, run to him, and be embraced by him. That is through faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, and we, we come to the table, and we ask that you would um, open up our hearts this morning to that uh, self-examination. May the Spirit of God enlighten us where we need understanding and may your people be confident in that which has been accomplished for us all in Christ. The giving up of his body, the shedding of his blood. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.